0: Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Transforming Public Safety, Changing the Law to Make Policing More Accountable, Equitable, and Just, discusses what states and municipalities can do to reduce the harms of policing and promote a more holistic vision of public safety. This program features three national policing experts on the next steps for reform. Maria Panamarinko, Associate Professor of Law at Minnesota Law. She is the co-founder and counsel at the Policing Project at NYU Law, and an associate reporter for the American Law Institute's Principles of the Law Policing Project. Monica Bell, an Associate Professor of Law at Yale Law School, and Associate Professor of Sociology at Yale University. Her areas of expertise include criminal justice, welfare law, Housing, Race, and the Law, Qualitative Research Methods, and Law and Sociology. And Walter Katz, Vice President of Criminal Justice at Arnold Ventures. He has more than two decades in public service, beginning with a 17-year tenure as a public defender in Southern California through his 2017 appointment as Deputy Chief of Staff for Public Safety in the administration of Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. This event was sponsored by the University of Minnesota Law School Board of Advisors and Academic Engagement Committee. This event was recorded on May 20th, 2021. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Gary Jenkins, Dean of the Law School, and I want to welcome uh, you to our Minnesota, all of our Minnesota Law uh, alumni, Uh, our students, our faculty and staff who are joining us today. Welcome also to those of you who are uh, joining us just to learn more about this important and timely issue. Uh, I'm really pleased to welcome you uh, to Transforming Public Safety, Changing the Law to Make Policing More Accountable, Equitable and Just. Uh, This webinar is hosted by the Law School's Board of Advisors Academic Engagement Committee. So I want to give a special thanks to committee members, uh, Judge Nancy Brazel, class of 96, and uh, Jim Parodic, uh, class of 98, as well as Abby Lloyd in our Advancement Office uh, for their hard work in planning this event. So today's conversation addresses how states and municipalities can reduce the harms of policing and promote a more holistic vision of public safety. As we are all well aware uh, from the tragic murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last summer to the more recent killing of DeWante Wright in Brooklyn Center this spring that we have a problem with our policing system. These are just two examples of many cases when officers have perpetrated unjustified violence against Black men and women. We also know that this is just the tip of the iceberg. For some time, communities of color have given voice to the fact that policing is different in Black and Brown and low-income communities. We need change. And when it comes to change in policing or explaining the deaths of unarmed Black civilians by the police, the narrative often begins with people talking about bad apples. But bad apples come from rotten trees. And the rotten trees are... um, uh, In the uh, the the harms of structural racism, of systemic racism, our past practice for holding police accountables, uh, uh, police officers accountable, has often centered on issuing civil payouts, right, from taxpayer dollars to victims of brutality, and rehiring fired officers um, uh, as part of a continuous cycle. Um, that is obviously inadequate, that's exacerbated the problem, so we'd see. So we need legal and policy solutions to improve police-civilian relations. Uh, we need to enhance trust in policing, to reduce officer-involved shootings, to alter policing culture. And we've seen a flurry of legislative and policy proposals at every level of government in the U.S. with slow progress on on the federal level, uh, state and local reforms are are, are a patchwork. These are complex uh, problems made more challenging by racial, political, economic divides. And yet, as Minnesota's flagship law school, we welcome the opportunity to support the Twin Cities community by advancing local and national conversations for policymakers, for leaders, for community members to navigate opportunities to to think about to critically evaluate to consider positive change. Now to be clear, the questions of public and community safety and the role of policing are deeply complex. They're going to require real listening, collaboration, and a commitment to change that lasts. Now, to discuss this topic today, I'm pleased to introduce our distinguished panelists. You all are in for a real treat today. Uh, we have two of the most prominent and thoughtful early career scholars working in the space with us today. Uh, at First, uh, we have Professor Maria Panamarenko. She is Associate Professor of Law right here at the University of Minnesota Law School. Professor Panamarenko joined our law school faculty in the fall of 2019, where she teaches and writes in the areas of administrative law, constitutional law, and Criminal Procedure. She is the co-founder and counsel at the Policing Project at NYU Law and an associate reporter for the American Law Institute's Principles of the Law of Policing Project. Her scholarship has appeared in the Virginia Law Review, the Northwestern Law Review, among others, and focuses on administrative law regulatory tools in state and local governance contexts, including policing. She is also our very newest winner of the Stanley B. Kenyon Teaching Award. So congratulations again on that, Maria. So welcome. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for being the moderator for our event. Next, we have Professor Monica Bell. Uh, I'm thrilled that she is here. Uh, She is an associate professor of law and associate professor of sociology at Yale. Uh, Professor Bell teaches and writes in the areas of criminal justice, welfare law, housing, race in the law, quantitative research methods, and law and sociology. She served as a Lyman fellow at the Legal Aid Society of the District of Columbia, and as a Clemenko fellow at Harvard Law School. Her powerful article in the Yale Law Journal It's helping to reframe how we think about police mistrust and thus how we think about policing reform. So welcome, Monica, thank you for joining us today. And our final panelist is Walter Katz. Uh, He is vice president of criminal justice at Arnold Ventures. Uh, Mr. Katz has an extensive background in law enforcement accountability and oversight. He joined Arnold Ventures after more than two decades in public service, beginning with a 17 year tenure as a public defender in Southern California through his 2017 appointment as deputy chief of staff for public safety in the administration of Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. At the mayor's office, Walter oversaw one of the most complex police reform efforts in the United States, serving as a co-negotiator of the consent decree that was enacted in 2019. And he led the design and development of the new Office of Violence Prevention. He is a past board member of the National Association for the Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. Welcome, Walter. Thank you for joining us uh, here today. Now, one bit of housekeeping before I turn it over to our moderator, as a reminder, today's webinar is being recorded and the link to the recording will be shared via email following the event. Uh, We also have live auto captioning enabled so you can click on that button to turn it on or off, depending on your preferences. We're going to reserve time at the end to address questions submitted via the Q&A feature found at the bottom of your Zoom screen. So please join me in welcoming Professor Panamarenko, Professor Bell, and Mr. Katz. I turn it over to you, Professor Panamarenko.
2: Thanks, Dean Jenkins. And thank you uh, both to our amazing uh, panelists and to all of you for joining us here today. Um, So I'm going to start us off with by framing the discussion a little bit and then talking a little about my piece of it. And then I'll turn things over uh, to Walter and Monica. Um, So ordinarily, when lawyers think about the law of policing, uh, the first place they go is the Fourth Amendment, which is the part of the Constitution that kind of most directly speaks to what it is that the police can and cannot do. And so often when lawyers think about police reform, at they think about constitutional litigation, bringing suits under Section 1983 against either officers or departments to incentivize or require them to adhere to these constitutional constraints. Um, Now, I don't want to downplay these efforts. So constitutional policing is an absolute minimum in our system. uh, And there's lots and lots of evidence to suggest that, you know, in many, many cities today, including here in Minneapolis, there's a widespread pattern of constitutional misconduct, of illegal searches and seizures, of excessive force, or violations of protesters' First Amendment rights. Uh, But the point that I want to make to start us off is that even if we could wave a magic wand and ensure perfect constitutional compliance, we would still have a problem of policing. Constitutional policing would unfortunately still look a whole lot like the policing that we have today. Um, And to see that, I just want to take a moment to sketch out what it is that constitutional law permits. And to do that, I'm going to focus on one slice of policing that's been on the news a lot in recent weeks, especially here in Minnesota, which is the pretextual stop. So one way that lots of departments, uh, both here in Minnesota and elsewhere around the country, try to go after crime is by going into what they perceive to be high crime neighborhoods and looking for people to stop. Now, ordinarily, officers need, you know, reasonable suspicion or probable cause in order to stop somebody and investigate them for potential criminal conduct. But there's an enormous loophole. And that loophole is that so long as officers have reason to suspect any violation, no matter how minor, they can stop the driver or pedestrian and use that stop as an opportunity to look for more and because our traffic and pedestrian laws are written so broadly that means in practice is that officers can stop virtually anyone at any time so particularly in the context of traffic enforcement they can pull somebody over for having an air freshener or dice hanging from a rear view mirror for having a broken taillight or driving with expired tags failure to signal a lane change or going just a few miles over the speed limit. And if you stop and think you've probably violated at least one of these requirements the last time you were behind the wheel of a car, which means in practice, officers don't actually have to have a reason to stop somebody beyond a vague and perhaps even biased hunch. Now, once a car is stopped, an officer can order the driver and passengers out of the car without any additional justification. Uh, If you watch the troubling stop of Lieutenant Nazario in Virginia, what he kept asking officers was why they were ordering him out of a car at gunpoint. And the answer, unfortunately, is simply because they can. Now, once out of the car, officers are allowed to demand ID to run a warrant check for outstanding warrants, and to question the driver and passengers about what they're doing, where they're going, and whether they have drugs in the car. And these questions can be incredibly humiliating. So so Sonia Sotomayor and many others have powerfully pointed out, it's one thing to be pulled over for speeding. It's quite another to be pulled over and questioned because the officer thinks, without nothing to justify it, that you're guilty of something more. Now, officers can also ask for consent to search either the driver, the passengers, or the vehicle itself. Now, here in Minnesota, state courts have actually limited that authority to some degree, but at least as a matter of federal constitutional law, officers can do this without any additional justification, and they don't even have to tell the driver that they have a right to refuse. And it's going to come as no surprise to anyone that people almost uniformly say yes. Uh, Now, even if an officer doesn't find anything, no drugs, no warrant, nothing beyond the low-level traffic infraction that generated the stop, the encounter doesn't necessarily have to end there. Because at least as a matter of constitutional law, probable cause of any offense no matter how minor, uh, can justify a custodial arrest. And here in Minneapolis, for example, officers arrested more than 12,000 people. Just stop and think about that, 12,000 people over a three-year period for driving without proof of insurance. And if you look at arrest records, there's lots and lots of other examples of arrests for these sorts of incredibly minor infractions. Um, Now, what if it turns out that the vast majority of people stopped searched and arrested are people of color, which is indeed what we see in cities across the United States today. Um, And here, unfortunately, the Constitution, again, has very little to say about it. So because courts require proof of intentional discrimination on the basis of race, most racially disparate policing escapes any sort of constitutional scrutiny. Um, Now, this, of course, is the part of policing that the Constitution actually pretends to regulate. Um, When it comes to constitutional law, though, it has virtually nothing to say about many other important aspects of what it is the police do. So it says, nothing about officer training, nothing about agency record keeping and reporting. It says nothing about how agencies identify, investigate and address officer misconduct. And constitutional law has nothing to say about whether we respond to problems like homelessness or mental illness by sending a social worker or sending an armed agent of the state. So constitutional policing is the bare minimum, but constitutional policing alone is never going to ensure that policing is in fact effective, equitable, or just. Um, Now, the fact that constitutional law has no role to play though, does not mean that the law has no role to play. Uh, Indeed, what I'd like to suggest is that the law here is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, and In particular, law can do three things, none of which it's doing particularly well at the moment. Um, So first, uh, the law can provide much, much more guidance uh, to officers on what is and isn't appropriate, uh, establish stricter standards around the use of force, minimize unnecessary encounters, and to curb the sorts of harmful fishing expeditions that I just described. Um, Now, as Walter Katz is going to tell us about in just a bit, the law also shapes how officers are held accountable. Uh, And in that regard, law can either be a barrier to accountability, it can make it harder to discipline officers who engage in misconduct, or law can be used to actually ensure the agencies fulfill their obligation to thoroughly investigate and address instances of misconduct. And then finally, as we're going to hear from Monica Bell, we also can change the law in ways that shrink both the footprint of policing and the criminal legal system more broadly and to promote a more holistic vision of what public safety entails. Now, before I turn it over to Walter and Monica, I just want to highlight some of the changes that states have made uh, in two areas around the actual standards of officer Conduct, the part that constitutional law purports to regulate, but as I've suggested, does very little to, in fact, constrain. Um, and here I'm just going to say a couple words again about pretext stops and then around the use of force. Um, so, first on pretext stops, you know, as I've already said, the Constitution gives incredibly wide latitude for police to stop, question, and search virtually anyone at any time. Um, now, agencies argue that officers need this authority in order to address more serious crime. Uh, but there's lots and lots of evidence, including a study that was spearheaded by the Policing Project while I was there, uh, that shows that, in fact, these stops are incredibly ineffective. They generate huge racial disparities. And as we saw in the context of Dante Wright, create a risk of really, really serious. Harm. Um, So, what have states have done? uh, So, one thing that Virginia recently did was actually prohibit officers from stopping people for low level offenses to begin with. So, you know, if you take a step back and think about it, it's really hard to see why an officer has to pull somebody over to enforce expired tags, a broken taillight, or any other low level infractions. And what Virginia has basically said is that alone is not going to justify a stop. Um, And so in Virginia, officers can still issue a citation for a low-level equipment violation, but they have to stop the car for something else more serious, something that has a much closer nexus to public safety. Um, Now, the Minnesota House at passed a proposal along similar lines. It's currently stalled in the Senate, but there's still uh, some hope that we might see similar legislation here in the state as well. Um, Now, other states have tried to rein in pretextual enforcement in other ways. So Connecticut, for example, has tried to get at the incentives behind making the stops by, for example, prohibiting officers from asking for consent to search. So if you take away that tool of the consent search, the pretext stop becomes a much less valuable tool. And Virginia, as part of its packet of reforms, has done something similar. Um, There's actually a lot more that states can do. So over the past six months, I've been spearheading an effort that's been supported by Arnold Ventures to draft model legislation on a variety of policing issues, including pretext. Uh, And in addition to the measures outlined here, we're sketching out a number of other important steps that states can take. Um, So one really important thing that states can do, and this is like a low-hanging fruit kind of approach, is actually to require departments to collect and publish data on stops, uh, arrest, citations, and arrests. So uh, if you think about it, you know when it comes to policing, we know very, very little about what the police do and have very few tools with which to assess whether it's actually working. Uh, so here in Minnesota, in the vast majority of departments, we don't know how many people they stop. We don't know how many citations are issued. We don't know the demographic makeup of people stopped. We don't know how many people are pulled out of a car, how many people are searched and how few of those searches actually turn up evidence of crime. Um, And the reality is often once departments collect this evidence and see it, uh, they realize for themselves that a lot of what they're doing is not Working. And so, one really easy thing that states can do across a variety of issues, whether it's pretext stops or use of force or complaints, is just require officers to collect data so that we can see which departments are engaging in problematic practices, figure out what is and isn't working, and create incentives to try to make effective change. Um, something else that states can do is actually engage in warrant reform. So One of the reasons why it's so profitable for an officer to pull somebody over on a pretext stop is because if that stop then leads to an outstanding warrant that allows a custodial arrest, that allows a search incident to arrest, and the kind of uh, scope of the encounter can go on from there. Um, But what a lot of states have done is dramatically limit the circumstances under which warrants can issue. So we've kind of found ourselves at a point in this country where a warrant is the automatic response to a failure to appear in court. Uh, it doesn't actually have to be that way. So people don't appear for lots of reasons that have nothing to do with their unwillingness to comply with their legal obligations. Uh, and lots of states have started to take really creative measures to encourage people to appear, uh, to give them opportunities to reschedule court dates if they fail to appear, and basically uh, to reduce the reliance on kind of warrant as the primary mechanism for getting people into court. Um, And I'm happy to say more in Q&A about kind of other ways that uh, states, localities, and individual departments can address problems like pretextual enforcement. Um, The last thing I just want to say a moment about is around the use of force, which is, you know, this other area where constitutional law ostensibly constrains it. It falls within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment, but constitutional law says very, very little about when force may or may not. Be used. So all the constitution says is that force must be reasonable in the split moment that force is used. Uh, And it must be reasonable under a totality of the circumstances under a really, really forgiving standard that essentially gives officers a lot of latitude to make at least reasonable mistakes. Um, And for too long, that's essentially all that state law has said as well. So, you know, here in Minnesota until last summer, the state laws on the use of force could literally fit on a postcard. All the state statutes around the use of force basically said was to restate the constitutional baseline around when officers can use force and deadly force. Uh, Now, the Minnesota legislature has made a few small steps at to address this issue around uh, de-escalation, around duties to intervene and report. Uh, But there's actually a lot, a lot more than states can do. Uh, So we, again, have been working on a draft use of force statute that basically outlines a much more comprehensive approach to regulating police use of force. And we've seen a number of states adopt similar approaches. So Washington, New Mexico, Colorado, Maryland, all of these states have passed much more comprehensive use of force bills to provide much clearer guidance around when force is appropriate. Um, So what have these measures included? so first they've often tightened up considerably on what actually makes force reasonable, necessary, and proportionate, um, including making clear that you know, officers actually have an obligation to try to de-escalate, to look for alternatives. Uh, to using force and that sometimes, especially in the context of a low level offense, it may actually be better to let somebody walk away than to use or overwhelming force in order to take them into custody. States have also uh, provided much clearer guidance on the use of various weapons and techniques uh, and required departments to establish policies that provide even further guidance along these lines. Um, As I've said already, states have established affirmative duties on officers uh, to uh, try to intervene to stop excessive force or to report excessive force when it's used. Um, They've imposed much more robust reporting obligations so you know we've heard a lot of talk about the fact that we don't actually have a clear sense of you know how many times officers have used deadly force in this country uh, much less less lethal force so the you know ordinary uh use of the taser strikes baton strikes even just handcuffs to take somebody into custody we have very little data about how different techniques are used um States have also outlined much more robust processes for independent investigations of critical incidents and finally have established much more robust enforcement mechanisms uh, to make sure that these detailed rules are in fact Followed. Um, and again, I'm happy to talk much more about kind of specific measures and things that seem more or less promising uh, in the Q and A. Um, but with that, uh, I'm going to hand things over to Walter Katz, uh, who's going to talk about the next piece, which is how the law both currently shapes the processes around police discipline um, and what the law can do better in this regard. Uh, so, welcome, Walter, and thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much, Maria. And uh, that was a wonderful uh, synopsis of of the state of the law. And uh, I can see why you just won a teaching award. So that was, that was wonderful. Uh, I am going to talk today about uh, accountability. uh, By way of background, uh, prior to joining Arnold Ventures, um, leading their policing portfolio, uh, I was, uh, I had a career first as a public defender, and then primarily in in police oversight and then policy uh, leadership at the Chicago mayor's office. Uh, In my role in accountability as in Los Angeles County at their office of independent review, and then as a deputy inspector general at their inspector general's office. And then um, I was appointed as San Jose's independent police auditor. Uh, So the auditor's office has oversight over reviewing Uh, misconduct complaint investigations against officers of the San Jose Police Department. I give that as a background to uh, point out two things. One, that my primary experience in terms of police accountability and the rules that govern it were through the state of California, but have broadened since then, uh, to also include Illinois and a more national perspective. But also to say that, you know, I've had that direct on the ground experience of seeing firsthand um, of how uh, police accountability intersects with the lives of individuals um, in that oversight role, of seeing uh, use of force complaints or officer-involved shooting investigations, and then being internally in the room with the department as they evaluate that incident and determine whether or not it's in force or out of force really highlights this dichotomy between the law as people see it and then ultimately how it is exercised where it is not as visible. And I think between those two, uh, there is a significant gap. So I'll focus today on, on the first, but I'll try to tie it to the second so you can have uh, an idea of how it it, it works in practice. Um, Today, uh, broad cross sections of the public do not trust the police to be fair or to act ethically and in their best interests. Um, A lack of transparency and accountability has frayed community relations preventing law enforcement from efficiently controlling crime and providing services to the public. When force is used, it appears that too often police leaders uh, violate their duty to uphold the law, at least this is how the argument goes, by not holding officers accountable for what is viewed as excessive force, failing to discipline the bad actor officers and refusing to share details with the public concerning serious incidents or withholding data. No, and that is the argument, the critique about accountability. The reality, though, is just in that description that I provided, how much of that is actually controlled by some form of law or policy? Um, as I said, when force is used, it appears that too often police leaders violate their duty to uphold the law, but not holding officers accountable for excessive force. What does that mean? That presumes, of course, that there is a finding of excessive force. And what we often see is that what people perceive when they see, for example, a use of force incident in, in on television or on the internet, more so today, uh, either from citizen video or from a body worn camera, is that they apply their own standards of what they think is excessive and say, this clearly is excessive force. And then months later, sometimes, when there is an investigation result and the result comes back, well, no, that force was in policy or did not violate the law. People observe that and say, well, wait a minute, I saw my own eyes that looked like like excessive force. What is it that you're talking about? This is where the law has an impact and uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence like Graham versus Connor, which essentially established an objectively reasonable standard gives great deference to the decision making of officers for their perception of when, to, of when a threat emerges, that perception of either that the person they're encountering is a threat to themselves or to others. And the law does not require that the, of, that the so-called offender, suspect, whatever you want to label that person as, has already committed some sort of violent act. An officer is allowed to use their judgment based upon a reasonable officer standard, even to uh, make some assumptions about when force is imminent and can act in response. Therefore, when a use of force incident is investigated by uh, a department in internal affairs, or even by an external oversight agency, which makes the determination of whether or not there was a violation of policy, they're looking at it through that lens of Graham versus Connor, and that lens gives great deference to the officer. Now, when there is a fatal encounter, in addition to that administrative investigation to determine whether or not the officer violated policy, there is also a criminal investigation to determine whether or not there's probable cause that the officer violated the law, violated the law when that officer used fatal force, that same deference applies. That same deference through the Graham versus Connor standard, but, and here's where there is a, sometimes a divergence between the law that we see, and how it is practiced. I have a, a, a particular memory of, of being in the room at one large agency which was full of investigators and the district attorney from that office who headed the unit which investigated or oversaw the investigations of of officer involved shootings, essentially told the investigator that they apply a reasonable doubt plus standard to determine whether or not to file charges. And it's not just, do I believe as a prosecutor that I can prove these charges beyond a reasonable doubt, like I would for a regular citizen. I'm going to apply a standard of a reasonable doubt, plus making an assumption that there's a higher hurdle to get a conviction. Therefore, even before I decide to file charges, I will apply that higher standard. And it's those in- implicit or unwritten rules like that, which then lead to, such you cases actually ever being filed against police officers in the absence of extraordinary public pressure. Those are those types of divergences between what we see in the law and how it is practiced. And I'll give another example. Maria was talking earlier about pretext stops. Well, how do those pretext stops come about? My experience is, and I think one of the most important things that Maria mentioned is not because, well, is that because I can standard, but because I can standard is the reality of how much policing is practiced in this country. I myself was in ride-alongs and in the policing world, you'll hear this phrase called license plate bingo. And what license plate bingo is is that there's some officers when they're out in patrol, they spend inordinate periods of time with one hand on the steering wheel and the other hand on the keyboard of their MDT, the mobile data terminal, running license plates, seeing what comes up as a warrant hit. Well, do they run the plate for every single car that they see? No. And I saw this with my own experience. They first have their own filter for determining which place they want to run. And that is often going to be determined by, is the car, quote unquote, out of place? Does the driver seem out of place? Does he look like he could be a gang member? Does she look like she could be a gang member's girlfriend? All those types of biases and determinations are rapidly played out. I was at an intersection, basically an eight-way intersection, and I could watch the officer next to me kind of scanning an arc, all the cars at red lights and picking out which plate wants to want it to run. And when something came up, he'd make a stop. Again, what the law says about what is justification for a traffic stop and then how it is exercised out in the field can actually look very different from each other. So let's move a little bit forward, and really focus on the question of uh, accountability. So we already talked about how there's this divergence between when people think excessive force occurs and why it doesn't feel like officers are held accountable. The other argument is that then police chiefs fail to discipline the bad actors. In other words, that quote unquote bad officer who was found to have violated. Uh, the standards for excessive force. He's still a police officer. Well, why is that? that? That must be the chief's fault. And the reality is that no, that may often be a result of the work itself. So I just wanna spend uh, a moment to, to talk about that and to see how that plays out. So let's say that you yourself were involved in some sort of traffic encounter. And during that encounter, uh, you're asked to step out of the vehicle. And then suddenly it got ugly and you found yourself faced on the ground with a broken arm. Maybe you moved in some way, which made the officer think you're reaching for a weapon. Something which I can tell you happens every single day across the grave. And that officer's effort to keep onto to the ground, a takedown, not even considered a serious use of force. And it will not even be thoroughly investigated in most part, unless you suffered a very serious injury. And as we saw recently in video from, I believe it was from Colorado, our officers took a 78-year-old woman with dementia to the ground and broke her arm and dislocated their shoulder. And afterwards, you know, they're laughing about it on body-worn camera because they didn't think it was serious enough to really merit that anyone ever see what they were laughing about. So let's say that this is what occurs to you and you find yourself faced on the ground with a broken arm and you file a complaint. And then that complaint and how it's investigated ends up itself becoming uh, a a reflection of the law. Arcane rules created by union or state law provisions. shield officers often from thorough and timely investigations. For example, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, When misconduct is alleged against an officer, an investigation has to be completed within 60 days. But the involved officer can't be interviewed until 30 days after a use-of-force incident. Elsewhere, when a police chief decides to fire an officer for misconduct, a complex and long appeals process begins that can involve arbitration or civil service panels It often results in the officer getting his or her job back along with that pay. Now, what do I mean by that? So, you know, there's a traffic stop. You suffered a serious injury. You file a complaint. The complaint gets investigated. These rules kick in for how soon you have to make that complaint before it expires. Once you make that complaint, rules kick in for how quickly that investigation has to be completed. Rules kick in for how the investigation is completed. That could be subject to state law or very often collective bargaining or a state law enforcement officer bill of rights. All of those mechanisms can regulate how the investigation takes place, can then make a determination of who is allowed to investigate you, who is allowed to interview you, how many people could be in the room, how many people can speak to you. So for example, there's collective bargaining agreements, which mandate that only up to two people can be in the room and interrogate you at any particular time, but only one person can be the questioner. You need to have 24 hours notice or 48 hours notice. It has to be at a place or time of your choosing. There's a host of arcane rules, which which vary from one union uh, agreement to another, one jurisdiction to another uh, across the country. Now, let's assume that all these hurdles are crossed. There's a timely investigation. You file your complaint on time. The investigation occurs in a timely manner that the interview takes place. The body-worn camera footage is collected. Well, can you see the body-worn camera footage? Again, that's a creature of state law. In some states, there's relatively open access. Yes, you can get it. In other states, like we just saw over the last week in North Carolina, the answer is no, you can't. And that's up to the discretion of a judge to which you'd have to appeal to, to get that footage. So let's say you get past that hurdle. Maybe you've seen the footage, maybe you haven't. And the chief determines, yes, there was actually an incident of excessive force by our policy standards, and I'm gonna move to fire this officer. Is that the end of the story? Not at all, because at that point, other rules kick in. And these are rules which are often, again, found in collective bargaining agreements or in state law, which provide for either uh, some form of post-discipline appeal, either arbitration or civil service. And what the research is showing is that quite frequently it is during that appeals process when attempts to get rid of an officer who a chief actually wants to fire themselves get reversed by an arbitrator, an arbitrator which uh, the officer's union had a role in selecting, or by a civil service panel, depending upon the uh, jurisdiction you're in, and that officer gets reinstated with back pay. And that can happen all too frequently. So I wanted to paint this picture to have you understand of how the current regulatory system gives great deference to officers and has established a high degree of regulation around the accountability of officers, what actually then makes it difficult for officers to be held accountable. It is generally unique compared to other professions including other professions that are generally regulated by the states. Now, let me finish up by saying kind of quick history lesson of of why is that? And one of the reasons of the why is that is through the the power established by, uh, uh, by police unions, which until the late 1960s really didn't exist. Early in the 1900s, there was a growth of police unions then in Boston, and shortly after World War I, Boston police officers went on strike. That led to preceded riots that occurred in Boston. There was a strong backlash to police officers being allowed to unionize. And generally, that is what the conditions was for labor organizing, labor organizing amongst officers until the 1960s. And then in the late 1960s, precipitated by protests over civil rights, created the political impetus for police labor to start organizing. And it is really with the growth of police labor that a lot of these rules were created, which lobbied for and were successful in getting law enforcement offers a bill of rights, started collectively bargaining and not just collectively bargaining over wages and work conditions, but also, and and, and benefits, but also significant portions of what we would call accountability provisions. And so therefore, if you want to understand how the accountability regime works in any particular police department, you may be tempted to go to their policy manual if you happen to live in a jurisdiction with a police department that has posted their policy manual, which was unusual in and by itself. But beyond that, Where the real meat is, is in the collective bargaining agreement. That is where you see many of the terms and conditions which then regulate those investigations. So I just gave a really high level overview. And if Maria would let me I'll probably go on for a significant other period of time of a step-by-step through the process where essentially the injured civilian is at a disadvantage to the officer and essentially at every step of the way through a combination of deference and regulation thanks
2: uh, thank you, Walter. I could listen to you talk about police accountability uh, endlessly. This was hugely informative. Um, I now want to bring in Monica Bell uh, and uh, give her an opportunity to talk about kind of these broader issues of the kind of footprint of the criminal justice system and the ways in which uh, the law both shapes that and can uh, shape it for the better. So Monica, welcome, and thank you so much for being here.
4: Sure. Thank you so much uh, for for having me here. I'm really really excited to be a part of this conversation with the two of you. I'm going to talk about uh, the need to shrink the police footprint at a broad level. And uh, as like preliminary um, uh, information, I want to you know acknowledge that we are at a time uh, when. Uh, Crime and particularly violent crime has been on the rise. And of course, this is essentially inevitable because of the pandemic. This is the way crime variations and fluctuations work, I have to say, as a sociologist uh, during times of, um, of considerable unrest and uncertainty that's when violent crime tends to increase. We're in a moment like that right now, so many people who are watching this Zoom might be thinking, how can you then talk about shrinking the footprint of the police at a time like this? Well, to those people, I would say, uh, the you have to understand how pervasive policing is For people who live in marginalized communities, especially Black and Brown people who live in urban areas, is a completely different sort of policing vantage point. I'm going to talk a little bit about my work as a sociologist um, uh, in trying to illustrate that. But part of what will come forth, and this is um, this is a bit of what we've heard a little bit about with pretext stops. So, and I really appreciated Walter's point about you know the going around and, and looking at people's tags because. There is a, a, a narrative in our uh, culture, in our society right now that that's, that is longstanding. That is in part a product of the police professionalization movement and this kind of uh, belief in police expertise. That police do crime fighting. There is no other way in which crime is fought. And that the fundamental work of policing on a day-to-day level, like this, like. Officers all day are crime-fighting. But we know from a lot of research based on ride-alongs, ethnographic research of various types, um, that for a long time uh, this is not actually what the day-to-day work of police looks like. There is a lot of dead time in policing. There is a lot of, you know, doing overtime, you know, thinking here about Seth Stoughton's work on police moonlighting and all sorts of, you know, police overtime efforts. There is uh, a lot of time in which police are just kind of out about looking, you know, working at games, uh, uh, monitoring voting booths, um, relevant if we're thinking about some of the changes that happened in Georgia, um, present in schools and various sorts of capacities, there is a world in which police are pervasive, not doing anything about crime fighting in particular, but instead just sort of monitoring. And the idea, of course, is preventive. So the justification for this type of hyper police presence is related to crime, but it's really hard to tell what, if any, and, and this is where um, some uh, Maria's work has been instructive, but what, if any, deterrent effect is actually had by that pervasive sort of preference of. Uh, Presents. So to give an example of uh, this issue of pervasive policing and the deep interconnection, and this gets to one of the questions, the deep interconnection between policing and other aspects of the social world for people who live under conditions of marginality, I wanna to point to some of the research um, I've done in Washington, DC, uh, interviewing low-income black mothers about really just their life experiences uh, in general. So I think this is important to point out, when I started this research, it was not about policing. It came it became to be about policing, because when I was asking low-income Black mothers about their experiences with the state, police came up over and over again. Here's an example. So Daniqua, and that's a pseudonym of one of the mothers I interviewed in D.C., so 35 year old mother who um, had, you know, a number of children, one of whom um, was a teenager. And uh, so this teenager, like so many other teenagers um, in people's lives, was rebellious and really didn't want to go to school. She had a hard time getting him to go to school. And uh, so he was truant And this was a a serious concern for lots of reasons. Of course, the educational ones, but also because if you're a poor Black person in an urban area, uh, you're constantly, let's say, I'll say Black parent, Um, you're constantly um, at risk of uh, having the state take your kids away. Um, And so Daniqua approached this whole problem of shulancy as, okay if I don't do anything, like I'm trying to do something about this. She was calling the cops to help them find her kid all the time. This is the resource that was available, right? Um, And she was worried about him being truant, not just because of the educational reasons, actually, but also because uh, in DC at the time, uh, there is a law, a criminal law, misdemeanor law um, on educational neglect, which is to say that if a parent has the power to help make their kid go to school and of course the, the culpability shifts by age. Um, but if they don't have their kid go to school and they, if they're not being as diligent as they can, then that invites a lot of observation by the Child, uh, child and Family Services Agency, which is their Child Protective Services program. Now you might think um, if you're a middle-class, a wealthy person, if you're a white person, it's easy to explain, you know, that you're doing everything you can. But Daniqua, especially given her previous experiences with the Child and Family Services Agency in DC, did not have those types of expectations. So essentially, uh, after, in this kind of cycle, the cycle of, you know, my kid's not going to school, I'm calling the police, they're finding him, they're bringing him home, a constant cycle. She says, you know what? I'm gonna get him a probation officer. I'm gonna call, so the Metropolitan Metropolitan Police Department of DC at that time had a youth services division that, you know, if your kid was misbehaving and you couldn't control them, uh, then you can call the MPD and get them a probation officer who will then kind of function as a surrogate father, making sure that the kid goes to school, checking in on them, kind of doing that sort of social work type of role, but through the police department. And that is a great transition, I think, to discussing this larger issue, why we need to think about shrinking the footprint of the police. The point is not just to shrink a footprint, but also to invest elsewhere. So it is really a tragedy and a travesty, I think, that Daniqua, whose son, you know, a Black son, 16 years old, in Washington, D.C., someone really at high risk, of being involved in a, in a detrimental way in the criminal system. The only thing his mother could think to do to protect our own children and ultimately to protect him was to call the police, was to en- enlist the criminal system. You know, other people don't have to resort to that. You can get therapists, you know, um, there are all kinds of resources available to you if you have money and the power and the status to be able to access those but those resources are not available but that's where we should be investing our public dollars um, where wherever possible so um, I want to say a little bit more about that because we've heard a lot, I think, about defunding, shrinking, abolition. Use, use whatever word you like. Um, the point is there is a lack of there is kind of a, a hyper institutional capacity for surveilling, but not necessarily responding to the crime concerns, by the way, of people in marginalized communities, because that's a constant complaint as well. But there is a great capacity for surveilling, um, black and brown people, particularly in urban space. Um, but there is not so much capacity for really responding to the needs of people who live under conditions of marginality. That it doesn't have to be that way, actually. So um, a, a few things. One, uh, since, the, um, since the summer of 2020, there's been a lot of uh, focus on programs out one example is the CAHOOTS program that lots of people talk about uh, in Oregon, which is essentially an alternative emergency response system so that uh, if there is someone in a health crisis or someone who seems to be in kind of behavioral health crisis, one might call it, you know, using um, alcohol or some, some sort of other thing in public space, oftentimes uh, people um, who have uh, issues of housing uh, insecurity, uh, there's someone else you can call. There is um, this alternative program, and there are places like Denver, Colorado, like San Francisco, a few other places that have tried to adopt this kind of model critically, you know, unlike some of the stuff people were talking about 10 years ago, this isn't a social worker comes along with the police when they get a call about something that seems like there might be a behavioral health issue. Instead, it's actually just not having police there at all. And that's really, really important because police presence always turns into criminalization. It always, so, and and also uh, always often turns into a risk of really deadly force. And I want to say here a word about um, the death of Micaiah Bryant, which happened just before the verdict um, of uh, Derek Chauvin's um, murder trial took place uh, in Columbus, Ohio. So, you know, Micaiah Bryant, Got a few days, I think, of people being like, oh, we should say her name. But the Columbus police and their PR department was really smart and thought, "Okay, well, how do we get ahead of this Micaiah Bryant story? Let's release the video that shows her um, attempting to uh, stab or, you know, something with a knife um, uh, another young uh, woman. Now, uh, the problem with this uh, sort of um, strategy, this, this way of thinking, is that Micaiah Bryant allegedly called the police herself. She felt like she was in danger. Um, and uh, but, you know, what happens? Things are out of control. And she is a person who winds up dead and maligned in her death, despite everything that had happened in her life that was difficult before then. Um, I'm also thinking about, um, uh, you know, uh, incidents we've seen where a neighbor calls to do a safety check on someone, um, you know, it's like, oh, things look awry, I'm gonna, you know, do a safety check, you know, call the police, surely nothing's gonna happen out of something like that. I am being a good neighbor by calling the police to check in, um, But then sometimes people uh, wind up dead when that happens because there's always you know uh, there's always um, there's this role that police play um, for the state, which is to be the violent arm of the state, to be um, the people who do have legitimate uses of force um, and legitimate uses of violence, to use Max Weber's um, words. Um, But um, this uh, role means that it is essentially impossible, I think, for police to also be social workers and to also kind of play these other roles. So um, I'll say uh, one other quick thing, um, which is to talk a little bit, I kind of been talking about policy, I think, more so uh, than, I don't know what what lawyers would call law. I think often policy is law, but whatever. but uh, I want to say a little bit about um, law, which is to point to the pervasiveness of criminal laws that legitimize um, police engagement. Uh, we have to mention this. You know, we, we've talked about Dante Wright and traffic law enforcement. Um, but we should, we can also talk about George Floyd, for example, and the, the alleged counterfeit $20 bill. You know, I was on some TV program and I said something like, you know, um, well, uh, this was, not, this was not the type of issue that you know, four police officers needed to respond to. And I got an email from someone who heard it and they were like, I can't believe you said that counterfeiting money is a big deal, it is a felony. And that is true. <laughs> but just because something is uh, on the books as a criminal law, even a felony does not mean that it is deeply harmful to the point where the, the state's weaponry needs to be um, elevated. So one thing I want to kind of raise to the audience is about the distinction between criminal law and harm between. Uh, and so there's a lot of harm done to people all the time, including by the police in a lot of ways you know, I've written about um, in, in many fora. Uh, that is totally legal. And this is exactly what Walter was talking about, that, 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 that no police officer would actually be held accountable for, but even at a quite low level. Um, but there are lots of criminal laws. There are lots of criminal laws that um, no one really deeply cares about and that many pe- members of the public don't even know about. And we have to revisit that and try to dismantle some of that. So a lot of this conversation has been about new laws that we can pass. And I think that is really important. Um, we also need to repeal some laws. Um, and so that's that's the final point I want to end on in this great conversation.
2: Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, Monica. Uh, that was uh, incredibly illustrative. Um, so we have some people on the queue. Uh, there's lots of room for more. Uh, I'm going to start us off uh, as the questions Populate uh, and Walter, i uh, will to start with you and ask. You know, you pointed to a lot of structural obstacles to accountability that make it hard for you know police chiefs to hold their officers accountable. Um, but you know, there's been this kind of line of critique that actually we should just never expect the police to be able to you know investigate themselves that we need, you know, whether it's independent investigations from outside the police department, civilian review. Uh, and so I'm curious if you can just talk a little about, you know, even in kind of the best world where we remove some of these structural obstacles, you know, can we really trust the police to investigate themselves?
3: That's a great question. And it's something that that I wrote about, uh, I think it was back in 2015, uh, when, when I wrote a law review article looking at independent investigations of fatal encounters and looking at the models. You know, United States, there are only about three large jurisdictions that have some form of an external, formalized external oversight model to investigate uh, a serious incidents. And that's uh, in a form in New York City, in Chicago, as well as in Seattle. But in other countries, uh, Canada, for example, and the United Kingdom and Scandinavia have these independent infrastructures that are charged with investigating uh, serious incidents that are independent of the national police or the provincial police force. And and I think there is a lot of, uh, there's some interest here in the United States to considering those as well. Um, There has been, uh, Growth in that there's some legislation in a bill in California about a year and a half ago, AB fifteen oh six, which would charge the attorney general's office with investigating uh, fatal encounters of unarmed uh, civilians. So that extra caveat. Uh, this governor Inslee, Washington, uh, just uh, signed legislation yesterday, which uh, creates more of an independent investigation structure. So there's a growth in that. Having said that, that evidence on having internal administrative investigations, not talking about criminal or external administrative investigations, doesn't necessarily show there's a strong difference in outcomes. And the reason there's not a significant difference in outcomes, at least in, in my opinion, goes back to the legal underpinnings I just discussed. When the decision about whether or not a use of force was excessive is against a, a very differential model, such as of Graham versus Connor, most uses of force will be in policy. That is just simply the reality of it. When we're talking about excessive force, we are talking about relatively narrow slice of all use of force incidents.
4: sorry, there's that unmute button. Thanks, Walter. Um,
2: and then Monica, you know, I was listening, uh, So you're talking about, you know, kind of models like CAHOOTS, which really focus on uh, alternatives to police when we deal with what, you know, most of us really not think of as police issues. I mean, it's really kind of an American pathology of sending police officers to deal with mental health issues or homelessness. Um, But What about violent crime? So what about this kind of core of what we think of as a policing Problem. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the ways that, you know, even that need not necessarily be the role of the police. And that's been kind of a big uh, push among whether it's abolitionists or defund or, you know, shrink activists. But, you know, what are different things that we can do to address even this kind of core area of what we think of as the police's
4: responsibility? Yeah, yeah. So that is a great and really important question. So I'm glad that you raised it. Um, so First, I think it's important to note that the distinction between nonviolent and violent crime is often a bit like artificial in the real, world, like in real practice. Um, so, uh, so, for example, um, you know, I'm, I'm at Yale, uh, we have the world's oldest, or not the world's oldest, the the nation's oldest um, police department, campus police department, and they send out all these um, crime reports. Uh, And uh, one of the crime reports they sent out recently was of a sexual assault, which is a very serious type of violent crime. Uh, The underlying uh, incident was some kids like hitting a student on the buttocks and running away which is a sexual assault that is a sexual assault and it is wrong and there should be accountability for it but the kind of the headline of this is a sexual assault that is not um exactly what people think of so this is to say there there are there is a lot of violent crime right there um we see this all the time like third degree assaults it's like some people got in a fight and not everyone has a criminal record um so But to to actually address very serious violent crime, there are people who have for decades who have been working on community-led sorts of responses to even violent crime. So I invite uh, your watchers to read the work of Danielle Sered, um, people like Amanda Alexander, people who are working on transformative justice initiatives. So if you want to learn more about transformative justice in general and transformative justice projects, there's a catch-all website called transformharm.org that people can look at to see examples of how um, there can be ways of building real accountability for violent harm uh, that doesn't just resort to locking people up and throwing away the key. Um, But here's another thing. We have to think, you know, again, so I'm thinking sociologically, how do we wind up with violent crime and violent harm. It is not the case for, all for, for the vast overwhelming majority of even shooting. So, so the type of violent harm that, that, that are not like the, the buttocks slapped in the same way. Um, most of this, like violence is situational. It does not arise for the most part, because there are just these awful people running around wanting to do harm the others. It comes about because of particular circumstances that people are in. You know, I mentioned um, COVID and how we see a violent crime increase there. Well, people are less financially secure. They're less mentally stable. Um, there is a lot that is that goes on that creates violent crime. So part of the impulse here, again, is not just to shrink or defund or to abolish, but to create other things such so that we can arrive at a kind of equilibrium where uh, there is less violent harm, not because we're sending out police more and more and doing hot spots and all of this stuff, but instead, because we are creating a type of world in which people don't feel a need to be violent or to be, to find themselves in as many violent situations. So that I think is also important to know.
2: And Monica, we have a question from one of the audience members. So, you know, how do we think about, uh, you know, the kind of cost effectiveness on both kind of a government and societal level of uh, criminal responses versus non-criminal responses? Like, has there been any research? Is it a matter of, you know, defund and realign or should we actually be spending much more than we currently do, just spending it in different ways?
4: Yeah, so that is a really excellent question. I'm, uh, I work on a piece right now that's kind of about the, the ways in which research has failed us, the ways in which social science has failed us um, in thinking about some of these questions, um, which is to say that um, it's a little hard to tell. Um, I think there have been some efforts to make estimates, but it's a little hard to tell actually what the answer to that question really is. Because um, uh, we actually you know, there is so little evaluative research, or really of any kind on alternatives that really conceptualize themselves as alternatives to carceral systems. That is a huge failing because they have existed for a long time, but researchers, and part because of the politics of research, which is to say, what gets funded? think, you know, I'm saying this with a funder person, but what gets funded is, is research that um, seems like you know, big data, you know, building partnerships with big institutions, not little weird activists and organizations that may or may not produce results. Other things, we have to think differently about results. And this, this is a really hard, so hard because I think it's actually entirely possible that if you shrunk, the footprint of police and invested more dollars into some sort of alternative over short term, it's entirely possible that there will be increases in crime, that there will be less effective response because it takes time to reach deep transformation. And so uh, that is a both a political and a sort of research problem. So we have to think differently about results over a longer period of time, checking in longitudinally, and also critically examining metrics that are not just crime, right? So examining metrics that are about community community flourishing, the legal estrangement, which I've talked about, that's going to take generations to resolve. But um, you know, so so there is all of this really really important academic work, um, research evaluation work that has to go in to actually being able to answer the, um, the, the questioner's question, um, in a, in a way that I would feel comfortable really standing behind.
2: Well, Walter, it sounds like Monica may have laid out a funding agenda here for you, uh, in terms of, uh, Future funding priorities. Um, So, Walter, let me pivot to you. So, one of the other questions was you know, we've been talking a lot about state and local government, uh, but there's obviously the federal government, and uh, the federal government can potentially, you know, play some role. I know you've been involved in some of the recent discussion around federal reform. Uh, You know, can you kind of say a word about, you know, what the federal government can do, is considering, and kind of how we should think about those sorts of reforms?
3: Yeah, I, I think we can. Think about the role of the federal, both a policy level and enforcement level, and third, also uh, from a funding perspective. Uh, at, at a policy level, I mainly want to touch on what you brought up before during your introductory remarks, which is about, about data collection. So let's just take two particular things: use of force and and misconduct. Um, the the we don't know, for example. How many people are killed every year by the police? Let alone what the factors are: the race of the person killed, the race of the officer, the circumstances behind the encounter, whether or not the person who was killed was armed with a weapon, was the person a threat to the officer or to a third party? All these, gonna kind of, these nuanced questions, which if I was looking at one individual use of force incident. I just rattle off like the five or first five or six basically the demographic questions I'd want to know about the incident. Right? Collectively, doing so is impossible. There are some jurisdictions where it's relatively easy to see how much force was used that led to a fatality, but collectively in a given state or nationally, yeah, it, it has not occurred. So we've relied upon initially the Guardian in 2015 and then the Washington Post later in 2015 through now with their their database, the fatal encounters database, We've relied upon third parties. So a few years ago, uh, policy was introduced so that the FBI would start collecting uh, fatal encounter data. Uh, I, I forget the exact name of it, but, uh, the, the, but the FBI is in charge of it. It has been in existence now for about two years. Last year, and it's voluntary, about 40% of police departments in the United States contributed to it because it's voluntary. Now, to me, that doesn't make sense. There's all sorts of data that we could be collecting from policing. And the most base data we should be finding, be able to find, is how many people are killed every year by the police. That's just one piece of it. We should be knowing how many people are stopped, how many people are arrested, all those types of use of force that don't lead to fatalities. That's just one area. Officer conduct is another area where officers can lose their jobs. Officers do lose their jobs. And often they pop up in a different police department to work elsewhere. Uh, John Rappaport, University of Chicago Law School, calls those the, the wandering officer. Well, one way to prevent the laundering officer is by having robust decertification schemes where just like I or any other lawyer who's on this call is a member of a state bar. And we know if we violate our state bar policy, we could lose our bar card, regardless of what our employer thinks about our conduct. Well, police officers generally do not function under the same regime. Discipline starts and stops within their own department and they're not in many states subject to a broader regulatory framework, which says if you engage in certain types of misconduct, you're gonna lose your certification as an officer. Beyond that, is there any sharing between the states of certified and decertified officers? So that's another policy level. And then in terms of funding, the federal government puts up billions of dollars per year through burn Jack grants, burn Jack grants, as well as through uh, the COPS office. And those standards for grant funding have really not changed in about 25 years. So they're not pegged to any form of accountability reforms. And so that's another area we could be thinking about. Is there a place for reform there, which could then lead to funding from the federal government, which would also drive accountability reforms?
2: Thanks, Walter. Uh, One thing I'm going to add to that is the federal government also incentivizes a lot of really, really bad policing, and they could just flat out Stop. So a lot of, you know, the problem of pretext stops, for example, I mean, that is kind of a federal baby. So the federal government for a long time has both encouraged and trained police departments to engage in pretextual traffic enforcement. There's these, you know, really atrocious manuals from the DEA and other federal law enforcement agencies that tell officers, you know, go out and make lots of stops. Here's to look, you know, what to look for during a stop. You know, such clear indicia of criminal activity, like having food wrappers on the bottom of your car are, you know, things that officers are supposed to look out for to then ask for consent to search. Uh, and this is not something that, you know, just happened in the 1980s. So, you know, the DDAX program continues right now to incentivize the sort of policing. And so, you know, one of the things we've seen with the federal government is they go in and investigate problematic practices, but the other part of the same agency, the DOJ, uh, often incentivizes them in various ways. And so that's just a really easy thing that the Biden administration could put an end to. Um, Let's see. uh, So a couple of the questions we've gotten are around kind of pretext stops and both what agencies uh, can do themselves and how constitutional law can change. And I'll speak to that for a moment, but then uh, invite either Walter or Monica if they want to jump in as well. So, you know, one of the viewers asked, you know, can agencies just stop making pretext stops and have some tried? Uh, and here, you know, I love to tell the story of the Nashville Police Department. So Nashville for a long time just made a lot of stops. It was, you know, they were stopping roughly one person for every two residents. Uh, if you looked at the stops of Black residents, it was more than one stop per Black resident, uh, typically for low level traffic violations, equipment violations. And, you know, their strategy was primarily that was how they enforced crime. Uh, and a few years back, they invited the policing project to assess the strategy. So they've been getting a lot of pushback from community members who pointed out that there were just these huge racial disparities, that these stops were resulting in a lot of harm. They'd had two shootings result from traffic stops over a two-year period. Uh, And so we actually assessed, you know, whether traffic stops were working as a crime control strategy and how to really think about what was driving the racial disparities. Uh, and, you know, the bottom line that we found is pretext stops weren't working. So the hit rates were incredibly low. It was, you know, roughly two out of every thousand stops resulted in some sort of, you know, serious arrest on a gun charge or other serious violent crime, the vast majority of people were just stopped on the traffic offense. And the racial disparities were really pronounced, even if you controlled for neighborhoods where officers tended to patrol. Um, So what the department did was largely stop. So they cut stops by something like 90% over a five-year period. And they just simply uh, gave their officers something else to do. So they, you know, reassigned their teams that had just been going around making lots and lots of traffic stops uh, to other kinds of crime prevention strategies, things that were much more targeted on individuals who actually were responsible for a lot of the violent crime um, instead of casting the sort of wide net. Uh, and so yes, I mean this is something that you know individual departments can do. The problem is we have 18,000 police departments. And so, you know, realistically, we're just not going to see individual departments fix this on their own. So it's why, you know, legislation along the lines that's been proposed here in Minnesota, that's been passed in Virginia is so important. Cause you know, even if Minneapolis addresses their problem with pretextual enforcement, you're still gonna have all of those tiny little communities around the twin cities that are gonna continue to engage in these sorts of practices. Um, Monica, I don't know if you want to speak to this, uh, but, you know, another question along those same lines was whether there's ways that constitutional law itself could change. So could we push constitutional law uh, to not be quite so solicitous uh, and, you know, kind of give officers quite so much discretion in uh, making these sorts of judgments?
4: Yes, that's a great question. I'll speak to it uh, briefly. So um, So I think one of the questions is like, what do we mean by constitutional law? I think often we mean what the Supreme Court's going to do in response to a particular sort of claim. And I think that pathway is not really the one I would pursue at this time to rein in police along, you know, like whether we're talking about, uh, you know, Fourth Amendment um, types of of, of constitutional law, but but also others. So I'm thinking here about Fourteenth Amendment and the famous Ren versus United States case on uh, essentially racial profiling. And you know, it's like you can't actually. You like there there are also pathways that have been actively cut off um, in terms of of regulating. Um, police given the kind of intentionality requirements um, of of the 14th Amendment. But there is one thing, I guess I'll, I guess two quick things um, I will raise as potential, I don't know, something for for people, like for not just like, so activists, regular people, not just like living in the Supreme Court brain in terms of thinking about who has a claim to the constitution. uh, so first, um, you know, I'm thinking about the ca- famous cases to Shaney versus Winnebago and Town of Castle Rock, Rock versus Gonzalez. And basically this idea that actually there is no requirement that the state and the police pre- affirmatively protect people, um, even if it has been involved in their lives. And this actually creates a sort of perverse incentives for police to get involved but then not have any obligation to protect people once they are under the aegis of the state, except if they're like in prison or like in an actual institution. So this is to say uh, that is a, that is a quite a, a contradiction actually. Um, and it's, it's a type of contradiction that movements or political actors could leverage to make arguments that, w- that would be powerful in a political space. Um, the other thing I'll quickly mention um, is the 13th Amendment. And so, you know, we've we've talked about shrinking, defunding, ab- abolishing, whatever. It's important to remember the conversations about abolition are not just about like the police, <laughs> you know, That's it's about like, you know, how do we create liberation, um, kind of racial liberation in our society? It's multi-pronged. And then once you understand that, trying to think about, Police reform, but also other sorts of related reforms, you know, kind of coming back to my initial conversation about the deep interconnectedness of police and, and other arms of the state. Uh, that kind of gives a window in thinking about what what erasing the badges and incidents of slavery could look like. Um, again, in a more of a political space than a Supreme Court uh, adjudication space. And the one other thing I just want to quickly mention is state constitutions. So we have a tendency to just like, oh, you know, the US Constitution is, is, is what it is. But there's a lot of language in state constitutions that could be helpfully marshalled. And also states have police power. States are responsible for the safe, the safety health. And welfare of of people and communities. And that sort of constitutional analysis could give space, maybe even in courts at a state level, certainly, again, at a movement level, at a political level to live up to the ideals um, of, of state constitutions as well. Uh, Terrific. So I think we have
2: time for maybe one more question. Uh, And Monica, I'm actually going to direct that back to you. So uh, one of the viewers points out that, you know, if you look at uh, state provision of mental health services, uh, the problem of racial bias uh, runs through that as well. And we also, you know, have this uh, tendency to both, uh, you know, prolonged confinement of people who have mental health issues, sometimes indefinitely, uh, and you know, you could look at other uh, social services that have a lot of the same pathologies. I mean, you pointed to child protective services. That's not exactly a social service that um, has been provided equitably uh, or fairly as well. And so, you know, when we talk about defund, uh, how do we think about uh, this problem that you know, lots of the state at uh, suffers from the same sorts
4: of uh, issues that we see in policing. Uh, Monica,
2: I don't know if you want to speak to that for a moment and then.
4: I'd I'd be happy to. I'm sorry. I had some kind of weird Internet. <laughs> no worries <laughs> Apparently I was like, what's going on? But anyway, so um, yeah, I think the question was about um the fact that the state is broken, it's not just the police, um, essentially. And I think that is um right. Um, and so part of I will say, like a I could address that theoretically, but I want to talk, I want to think about it practically, which is to say that because of the lack of investment in other arms of the state and like part of the reason that um, many social workers in the state um become you know avenues of oppression rather than support and liberation it's actually because they're not paid well because they're also working like really intense hours they have um really intense caseloads, no power, no advocates. Um, You know, the, the police unions are powerful. Their public, their versions of public sector unions don't have that same type of power. There are all these really practical everyday ways in which the lack of funding and resources and investment in other arms of the state are part of what make them oppressive. Now, of course, there's a larger concern about the fundamental, um, you know, racism and tendency of state failure, the classism, the like, you know, um, like all of these assets of the state as well, um, that is all true. But the point, um, if I'm trying to think about what can we do to improve what we have, I think at a very basic level, um, uh, and making those jobs better, more attractive, um, uh better resource. All of this can make them uh, more valuable resources. Okay, I'm going to talking now. I'm sorry. <laughs>
2: uh, no, that's uh, perfect. Uh, and thank you, uh, Monica and Walter. This has been incredibly fun. I'm going to hand things over uh, to Jim Parodic, uh, who I think is going to give a couple of closing remarks, but I just wanted to thank you both for uh, joining. This has been such a terrific conversation.
5: Thanks, Professor. Um, I just want to, on behalf of the uh, Board of Advisors and the Academic Engagement Committee that I'm a part of, and Judge Brazel, who helped organize this, I just want to thank this really incredible group of panelists it, I mean, the, the, the dean said it would be a treat and it's, that's, that was underselling it. I've thought and learned about things that I, I believe are at a next level that I think we're already, after having been engaged with this uh, pretty seriously, certainly in Minnesota uh, for the last year, should have been longer, but certainly the last year, I think I'm thinking of things at the next level. And as a housing rights lawyer, I'm recognizing so many overlaps with that area. And the, and the emphasis on data, by the way, that has been an incredible game changer in the housing area, and it's and and I think you know just getting those facts on the table and being able to show people what's happening. That feedback is, uh, I think, continuing. We need to do a better job in the housing area, but it's made a huge difference in my line of work. Um, Uh, I especially want to thank you, Professor Panamarenko, for taking the lead in organizing this, because it is really, when you think about it, a heroic effort to put this kind of thing together in this context. In reality, This was essentially put together in the middle of the Chauvin trial. And, and, you know, I know uh, uh, Professor Ponomarenko had probably a thousand other irons in the fire, including doing things like winning teaching awards, which congratulations uh, doesn't surprise me at all. Um, uh, But really, thanks so much for that. It just just, you know, really generous of you. And and of course the other panelists that, to to share your time in this in what's a very busy time for you I know academically and and media wise um, I'm really happy that Dean Jenkins did the introduction because you know I've I've been at the law school I graduated. Ninety-eight. Um, it's always I've always been very proud of the law school and proud of what we've done. And I think this is objectively one of the best law schools in the country with wonderful professors. But Dean Jenkins, I think, has really brought another level. Of, 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 of civic engagement to what the law school is in this in the state and nationally, I really and in the city certainly, and um, I just think that's been such an important, exciting development to what was already an outstanding law school, and I'm really proud of that, and I'm proud to be on the board of advisors when this happens. I, I can take absolutely no credit for it, but I'm happy to see it. Uh, I want to thank Abby Lloyd, who is in the career advancement office, who really is, you know, she kind of really put together the nuts and bolts of this and and kept on everybody to to put it together. Uh, Abby is, among other things, a major gift um, officer in the career advancement. So if anybody watching this is interested in a major gift, Abby would be a good person to talk to. And then finally, I want to thank all of you for attending I noticed that the participant number went down as I started to talk, which is fine, but <laughs> we're getting close to the end of the hour. But at one point, we had well over 250 attendees in the heart of this and for most of this. And just to see that level of engagement and in, you know, that level of attendance is really, really exciting and gratifying and I think bodes well at least it's an indicia that the things that this panel was talking about are going to really have an impact going forward. So thanks so much for coming. And thanks again to the panelists.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.